Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guest who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Welcome to the podcast mini-series, On the Neuro, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Thanks for joining us for our sixth episode, Difficulty Swallowing After a Head Injury. This audio course is offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. I am your host, Dr. Tabia Pope, President and CEO of Head to Speech Incorporated. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of this podcast and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. My non-financial disclosures are that I am the founder, president, and CEO of Head to Speech Incorporated, a nonprofit organization. My guest, Charlinda Lassiter, receives an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode, and no relevant non-financial relationships exist. And now, here's a little bit more about my guest today. Terlinda Lassiter is a multi-state licensed traveling contract speech-language pathologist with over 11 years of clinical experience in various settings, including outpatient centers, assisted living facilities, and schools. An enthusiast for dysphagia, she is the founder of the Sally Dysphagia and Reflux Support Group, a member of the ASHA SIG 13, and is a cohort member of the 2021 ASHA Leadership Development Program Healthcare Cohort. A volunteerism enthusiast, Trelinda has served as an SLP volunteer for the Delaware Medical Reserve Corps, volunteer instructor for our normal aging swallow course at the University of Delaware, Asher Lifelong Learning Institute, and has been an ASHA step mentor for over seven years. The On the Neuro podcast features guests who are either emerging, expanding, or influencing within the neural community, as well as those who can speak on topics related to brain injury, sports concussion management, and overall brain health. Welcome to Linda Lassiter. Thank you so much for joining me on On the Neuro. Thank you for having me. I like the breakdown that you had. I would say I'm emerging. <laughs> I consider myself emerging. We're like lifelong learners. So <laughs> I was going to ask you before we get started, you know, which category best describes yourself and why is it emerging, expanding or influencing? You've said emerging. Yes, definitely. Think of one thing that you've learned as emerging or even expanding your knowledge within this profession. That's why this topic is so interesting to me, because I had spent as a traveler, I spent some time in the schools, outpatient, assisted living. And then I also did some time, nine years, actually, (laughs) in the skilled nursing facility in different cities. And what I found was over the years, 
because insurance and, you know, how healthcare, there's some changes. People are leaving the hospital sooner. So in the skilled nursing facility, we're actually getting more acute cases. So even though I had never been in acute care in my life, I started to feel like, okay, I'm seeing more what we would consider subacute injuries with the head. I'm seeing more athletes. I'm seeing younger people that are coming in. For example, one case in his 30s, and this young man, he had come in. He went to the hospital after a fight. Nobody knows how long he was unconscious. Okay. He left AMA, even though the CT scan showed like this hypodense mass in the upper left area, and it didn't go past like the brain sutures. So that can be dangerous because we're like, okay, you don't want blood building up there. So I feel like as an emerging therapist, even though I've been practicing for 13 years, years of experience doesn't mean years of expertise. And you start learning the different demographics and you're learning about these different people. So you get these cases and you're just like, okay, let me take another CEU. Let me call some more experienced therapists. Let me call some seasoned clinicians and do more research because what is going on here? Because we can't control the patient, but we can control the knowledge that we gain. And I'm so fascinated by this combination of what's going on when the head gets hurt, because no two brain injuries even looked alike, even within the same demographic of people. And unfortunately for this young man, he left AMA and turned out that he actually ended up having what the neurologist called an epidural hematoma. And can I explain it like a neurologist? No. But what I did know was him leaving AMA, he actually went home and he died. It was very unfortunate because he had gotten consciousness again and he had thought he was fine, but that was like a latent period. So it was, it was very unfortunate. I'm happy that you pointed out that we are lifelong learners, especially in this area. And what we're talking about today is you have to take more CEUs. You have to continue your learning in this area as well. Ashley, can you give one tip to someone that is emerging their knowledge within the medical speech language pathology field? Because I also consider yourself an expanding therapist as well. You know, I think, yeah, because I mean, you have uh, 11 years of clinical experience. So I think that you definitely fit that expanding role as well. Even becoming an influencer in your own right. You're a mentor. You also are a part of the leadership development program. So I think that you have a lot of experience with mentoring in this area. And so what is one piece of advice that you would give to someone that is emerging within our field? I would probably encourage them to like, don't be afraid to go out of their comfort zone. So everything that was in my bio is basically me out of my comfort zone. I'm a total introvert. I'd rather be in a corner reading a book. Nobody ever hear me. (laughs) So that was my biggest challenge was in the field. I would ask questions and my biggest tip is just go outside of your comfort zone. Like, don't be afraid to try a new venture. Don't be afraid to like reach out to seasoned clinicians and ask questions and don't be afraid to be wrong. That's what it should be. It should be a safe space for us to kind of commune together and get an email for somebody to challenge your work or challenge your peer-reviewed journal. Don't be afraid to be challenged. That's what I would say. Don't be afraid to get out your comfort zone. I love that. Get out of your comfort zone. And honestly, the things that I have done that I've really, truly grown as a professional within our field are things that scare me. <laughs> yes. it's, getting, it's getting out of your comfort zone and it's doing things that scare you, right? So I definitely agree and definitely love that piece of advice. So this evening, we're going to be talking about dysphagia concerning how it's associated with concussion and head injury, as well as cervical spine injury. 
And then we're also going to highlight the symptoms of dysphagia and provide some case examples of athletes or those that have experienced dysphagia following a concussion or TBI. So I want to give you the opportunity to tell our listeners, give us them some good background information on the cervical spine and how it's related to head injury and dysphagia. It was very interesting only because I started to notice that when I was traveling, especially in the Rockville, Maryland area, and that was some years ago, I started to get more and more patients that were under the age of 50. And I said, okay, well, what's going on here? And I didn't realize that there was a prevalence going on of the cervical dysphagia type. But let me go ahead and talk about the cervical spine first, and then I'll go ahead and talk about the cervical dysphagia type. So I had like a little ballerina with her ballerina bun that was actually one of the first Patients, I would say, or clients that I had come across, she actually, she was doing like a pirouette and she fell backwards and she had sustained like a head injury. And with me being a travel therapist, I was actually covering like a vacation. A lot of the patients that I saw, it was very transient, but I felt like I was still learning from what I came across. Now, when it came to the cervical spine, I learned about the cervical spine. It consists of 37 joints. You have C1 all the way down through C8, but we don't really say C8. You typically might go into like T1 and then go down the 12 thoracic vertebrae, and then you go down to the lumbar. And I tried to learn more about the spine when I discovered I had scoliosis myself. And I came across an orthopedic surgeon and tried to kind of pick his brain about what is this big deal with the spine? The cervical spine It's at the base of the skull, and then it goes all the way down, like I said, to the T1. And the atlas at the top, the C1, and the axis C2, they do a lot of the job, and they're really responsible for the rotation of the neck and for the movements of our necks for our full range of motion. So you can imagine how vulnerable we become when we're in contact sports, when we're doing cheerleading, you know, when we just have a simple fall, when we're getting hit, or if there's a trauma that happens from a motor vehicle accident, very unfortunate to have that loss. The spinal cord is actually inside of the vertebrae and it protects it. So it's supposed to protect our spinal cord and our vertebral and carotid arteries. And you know, like, why should we care? (laughs) Because I had written down about the vertebral artery that it runs through the spinal column in the neck to provide blood to the brain and the spine. And then also when it comes to the carotid artery, it supplies essential blood and oxygen to the brain and head. So you can imagine those head injuries that we come across when somebody has hypoxia. If I'm hurt in my cervical spine and then I hurt my spinal cord, that can turn around and then in turn hurt my brain. I can sustain a brain injury in that sense. So we're very, very vulnerable in terms of the cervical spine. Want graduate level semester credits for your speechtherapypd.com courses? They are available now in collaboration with the University of Pacific. And as you know, most of our 750 plus video and audio courses are evidence-based and all are super practical. Subscribe now. What are some of the symptoms of dysphagia that are usually associated with cervical spine and head injury? Unfortunately, with the cervical spine injuries, you'll come across different persons who they'll say, oh, I feel like something is stuck in my throat, or they might have symptoms of reflux. They might have pain while swallowing. They might have discomfort. They might have mucus. They might have spit. And there's no other item. You start to have this exclusion where the endoscopy doesn't show any findings. You're starting to wonder, okay, is this psychogenic? What specifically is going on? And then 
when you look into the spine, there might be some compression going on. Like if there's a compression or if there's instability of the neck, that can affect the nerves and how they're sending signals or information to the brain. And then it can also affect how the information is coming back down. So if we have instability in the neck, like let's say like right here, the dotted center, there was a patient who had a cervical spinal x-ray and you want to see the C2 vertebrae in the dead middle, but his was over to the right. So with the instability of the neck, he wasn't able to coordinate and propel the bolus properly to his upper esophageal area, and he was having difficulty getting it down. So it's very unfortunate when you have somebody with a cervical spine injury that can happen concomitant with a head injury because that can cause complications. It opens up the door for aspiration or for pharyngeal residue because Unfortunately, persons with cervical spine injury, it's very likely for that population to have pharyngeal residue. It's also very likely for them, if there's like a lower cervical spine condition, for it to affect the peristalsis in the esophagus. So you start to see different parts of the swallow is actually affected negatively by the cervical spinal injuries. And the most common cause of the injuries, obviously, it would be like trauma, like your motor vehicle accidents and your falls, your blunt force and things of that nature. What does a combined presentation of dysphagia, concussion, or head injury look like? So say an athlete sustains a concussion, what would exactly that look like for an athlete? Okay, so that can vary by place, time, how the athlete got hurt, where they got hurt, the location of where they got hurt in reference to their spine, because their most vulnerable areas would be their lumbar, like their lower back because that's very mobile, and then also their cervical spine. The concussion, that can vary as well, because that's technically like a mild traumatic brain injury, and they might have dizziness, headache, vomiting. They might have slurred speech. They might have transient blindness. Like It really depends on the impact. So they can be very, very mild, or they can be very, very severe. So it really depends. They could be as severe as a comatose state, or as light as they get maybe a 13 to 15 on the Glasgow coma scale and they're fine. They think they're fine, but you want to still, anybody that has high trauma, you want to really suspect a cervical spine injury and catch it early and make sure that the dysphagia is caught early. It can normalize on its own. You know, like they can be injured as a result of like something compressing, a contusion, like some type of a bruise. You're thinking field hockey, you're thinking lacrosse, you're thinking soccer, you're thinking football all the different athletes. And there could be a rotation, there could be a hyperextension, there could be a flexion of the spinal cord, and all of those different things can contribute to, unfortunately, neck instability and subsequently a dysphagia. What type of experiences have you seen also with athletes and dysphagia following TBI? I'm also going to ask you this too. With your experiences, what tools have you used that you would recommend for our listeners as well? So my tools were always limited to the facility I was in at the time. (laughs) So when it came to the different experiences, I kind of used what was readily available online. So like I was able to go to the CDC website and get my acute concussion evaluation. I can download that TBI screening tool that's available like on what different websites like spinehealth or brainline.org. I was able to go to the Glasgow Coma Scale. You can actually download that as is and then utilize that. It varied because it really depended on the intensity and the acuteness of what you saw them. And again, I won't have as acute as people who work in the acute care hospital because I was more like in the skilled nursing facility, outpatient facility, school. So I had like a varied experience that was a little bit different and unique. 
But I will say that I did see different presentations because where our memory center is in the hippocampus, where it's located in our brain, it kind of can get hit at all sides. So it doesn't matter what the insult is. I did see commonalities within like memory problems, difficulty trying to recall items, sensitivity to light. There were like emotional outbursts. Sometimes they couldn't really like regulate their emotions and it was kind of like manic. So sometimes there would be some depressive states. Sometimes there would be agitation. Sometimes there would be just like a little bit like calm, but like a sad calm. And they weren't really aware. So they were like very disinhibited. So that was very interesting. And what I can say about the athletes, though, the ones who wanted to return onto the team, they wanted to return to work. They were motivated. They were willing to co-treat with the physical therapist. They were willing to come on board and engage. And they didn't like the collars because unfortunately that was really restricting. A lot of times you might see like a cervical collar and it can get in the way because they tend to sink down and then it displaces their upper region when it comes to them trying to eat. So sometimes just kind of putting a pillow in postural readjustment and postural realignment is a huge, huge factor in trying to address what you see with the athletes because they want to eat again. And again, you might see throat clearing, coughing, but you might not always see coughing because sometimes, again, with the cervical spine injury, when you're playing with the spine and you have sensory and motor impairments, not just in the nerve signals sending to and from the brain and to the body, but also when you have impairments within the pharynx, right? There's a sensory component as well as a motor component. Maybe they're not tasting the food like they were. Maybe they're not feeling the pressure of the bolus. Maybe they don't know where in their mouth it is. Unfortunately, when those things start to happen, you see more pharyngeal residue and you might have more of a neurological issue as well as a mechanical issue. And there can be like silent aspiration. So they might not even know that they're sending bolus items into the airway. That is so interesting. I want you to go and back and talk about, because you really provided some great tools for your toolkit, right? For your concussion toolkit. So can you go back and talk a little bit about the acute concussion evaluation and then the TBI screening tool and also the Glasgow Coma Scale and how you kind of go through those and try to provide us with more insight on how we can utilize those and give some tips too on how you have interpreted those tools. So I know with the Glasgow Coma Scale, how I utilized that scale was I literally like if you go to Glasgow Coma Scale, they actually have their own website. <laughs> so I literally like when I go follow the tools, I go online, I pull it up and I literally just kind of follow the directions. I go through the checklist and I see like what the components are that I have to look at when it comes to the different patients. So you have on the Glasgow Coma Scale, you have check, observe, stimulate and rate. So for those that are pulling up the glass calcoma scale, we want you to be able to think about how you can utilize this scale for acute stages of traumatic brain injury. And that's what I wanted, you know, kind of to think about with eye opening verbal responses and best motor responses. Right. So with the Glasgow scale, it's just kind of straightforward. Like I would go through the form and like for eye opening Sometimes I would go in like with a stimulus, like with a peanut butter jar, like a spoon of peanut butter, just something where I would put it under their nose just to see if I can stimulate a response to see if they would respond, like to get like their eyes to open and blink to kind of kind of turn <laughs> towards what I'm sending them. And I would be at the disposal of whatever was available in the sniff kitchen. So sometimes I would have like an orange slice or just something potent, maybe like a lavender scent, but something potent where I can just kind of put it by their nose and see if I can get their eyes to open without me gently putting like a cotton swab, like on their zygomatic area. Like I'll put it on their zygomatic bone and I'll like kind of lightly tap 
and see if I can get their eyes to open or I might take like an ice glove or a damp cloth and I'll gently go along the course of their eyelids just to see if I can get like an eye opening. Like I would kind of use like at the, whatever was at my disposal at the time. And then like for a verbal response, obviously I would just kind of call out to them and like talk to them and speak in gentle tone. I wouldn't want to startle them because again, the senses can be thrown off. There can be changes in hearing and dizziness, vertigo, and that kind of a thing when it comes to the patient response. But I would just kind of like literally just go through the checklist. And I hate to say that I feel like it's just kind of straightforward, but I would just kind of go through the checklist and follow it exactly what it says there. And then how would you utilize the acute concussion evaluation, the ACE? And this is actually a tool for the emergency department, more for acute care, right? Right. That's more for acute care. I've always used that as a reference. So like how I used it from like the SNF standpoint is I would actually fill that out with the family. So I was able to utilize that with the family to kind of get some more background. Because again, like you're getting them a little bit less acute when they come from the hospital and a lot of that information is already provided for you. But as we know, medical charts can get a little mixed up or sometimes there might be information there that is not as relevant. They might say like, you know, that's not my family member. That's not what happened. So I would, sometimes I call the therapist at the acute care center and I would just kind of correlate whatever the medical chart says with the chart, with the item. I actually pulled it up here and I would say, okay, today the following symptoms are present. You know, I would go through it physical. Did they have any headaches, nausea, fatigue? I would call first to see what the prior level of function was. So I would ask the same thing. I would go through the chart with the family member. I would go through the chart with the previous therapist. And then I would go through the chart with me in that time. And I would look to see like, you know, are they still engaging in these behaviors or is there a change in their behaviors? Did they seem like they were getting better? And then now we're having like an acute change because I always want to make sure that we're looking out for like post-concussion syndrome because that can occur beyond two weeks. And then that's a whole new criteria that you want to make sure you refer to the MD because you expect the concussion to kind of alleviate itself within like a day, a few days, up to two weeks. But if it's sustained longer than that, for some people, it can sustain for months to even years. I think it's important for what we're talking about this evening and talking about cervical spine injury and how it impacts head injuries and how it's related to dysphagia and the acute and subacute phases, right? And then how it impacts post-concussion syndrome, how it can lead to post-concussion syndrome. So I think it's important to talk about the ACE, the acute concussion evaluation, and really have speech pathologists understand that at that acute and subacute stage, you do need to ask these questions. And sometimes we're not trained in asking questions about traumatic brain injury and about concussion. And so this is a great tool for you to start to understand the questions that you should ask. Is there any evidence of a forcible blow to the head? Is it direct or indirect, right? Is there any evidence of intracranial injury or skull fracture? What's the location of the impact? Is it frontal, temporal, parietal, you know, the location, occipital, the neck, like you said, the spinal injury or indirect force. So it's important to know the location of the impact. Also the cause of the traumatic brain injury. So obviously we are talking about sports related concussions, but there are other types of traumatic brain injury. It could be due to a motor vehicle accident, a fall, an assault. The amnesia, are they able to recall the events before the injury and after the injury? So was there any loss of consciousness? 
any early signs of just not being able to of cognitive communication deficit. So do they appear dazed? Are they confused about the events? Are they answering questions very slowly? Are they repeating questions? Are they being very forgetful? Having those early signs, right? Being able to document those. Also seizures. So it's important to know what to ask for in the acute and subacute phases of traumatic brain injury, especially as it then we talk start talking about dysphagia. And then thinking about the symptoms, the physical symptoms, the cognitive symptoms, sleeping, or any emotional symptoms. So I think that's a great tool to really utilize and understand how to ask the questions for traumatic brain injury. Yes, definitely. What about the TBI screening tool? Because I think that's a great tool as well. How have you utilized that tool? Yeah, so this is just like another screening tool that, again, it's just kind of straightforward. So what I do is I go through the checklist. I ask the questions that's written on there, and it looks at different components like trauma, behavioral effect, impact on everyday function. And after I fill it out and I get my consensus of where the patient is, that's how I kind of govern what my next steps would be. Like, would I refer them back to neurology? Would I talk to them with the charge nurse? Would I keep an eye on them to make sure that there's nothing acute going on? Because especially when you're in that kind of nursing home assisted living setting, a lot of times you think that the acute phase is over. You think things are over and done with, but you want to continue to kind of monitor and see how the patient is going and how their brain is kind of rejuvenating itself. Can you give any treatment considerations and some of those questions that speech pathologists need to think about regarding treatment considerations for traumatic brain injury related to cervical spine injury, brain injury, and dysphagia? Yeah, so treatment considerations, it's always interdisciplinary when it comes to the cervical spine, because obviously we're not the orthopedic surgeons and we're not doing the cervical spine treatment ourselves. Sometimes we might refer out to the MD. Sometimes we might rule out digestive issues because we want to make sure that we're kind of looking at it as a cervical spine issue. Can you look at your PowerPoint and can you talk about a little bit about your PowerPoint for me? So the cervical spine encompasses seven vertebrae and serves as a protection to the spinal cord. Due to its anatomy and flexibility, it is the segment of the spine highly susceptible to injury. So I have like a little image there of like a ballerina, like with a ballerina bun. And as you can see, it's the C1 through the C8. But we really just say C1 through C7 and then C8 is technically like T1. So the cervical spine has 37 joints and permits more motion than any other region of the spine. And the cervical spine begins at the base of the skull. So you have C1 and C2. They're responsible for most of the rotation of the neck and head. And it helps to protect the spinal cord, vertebral and carotid arteries. I had mentioned that the vertebral artery, that's the major artery in the neck, one of them, and it runs through the spinal column in the neck to provide blood to the brain and spine, and also the carotid arteries that supplies essential blood and oxygen to the brain and head. It helps to protect the spinal cord, vertebral, and carotid arteries. The cervical spine is more vulnerable to both direct and indirect trauma. In the cervical spinal cord injury population, sometimes the problem of dysphagia, it can be transient and temporary and the patient can recover naturally. Other times, it may not be as such because like with the problem of dysphagia, this demographic with the cervical spine, they're more likely to have like edema and pharyngeal residue. And in general, spinal injuries above T6, because we're talking about C1 through C7, it tends to slow down gastric emptying. There's some muscle tone loss, and then they can have trouble operating their lower esophageal sphincter. So you may see reflux in this population. 
And then also, unfortunately, this population can also be prone to skin breakdown. So that can indicate you're using like an interdisciplinary consideration, like you're looking at the nurse to make sure that their skin has the integrity that it needs. This population is going to need protein for their nerves to recover from any nerve damage of the cervical spine injury. So then you're going to look out to the nurses. You're going to look out to your nutritionist and your registered dietitian because you want to have your fortified foods there. Now, if somebody has like a compression or like a bony spur or an osteophyte that's impacting their pharynx, the space in their pharynx, then they can have difficulty swallowing where they can't really get the food down. They might choke. They might have pharyngeal residue build up. So you may want to turn around and during your clinical assessment and you may have to alter their diet. You may have to provide for them softer food items. And for the patients that have dysphagia following cervical spine injury, there might not just be a motor or a mechanical impairment, they may also be a sensory impairment. So implications for treatment in the therapy room, you may have to give them different kinds of taste measurements. You may have to play around with their different receptors and see if those sensory receptors are working. And you can use different modalities. You can try touch, you can try pressure, you can try like Well, we don't want to induce pain, (laughs) but you might try positioning. You might try temperature, taste like sweet, salty, sour, umami. You might try a cooling effect. If you have like any Mentos candy, I've used Mentos. I've used, they're like these little papers that you put on your alveolar ridge and it's kind of like a gum. It's like a menthol mint, but it's made out of xylitol if they can't use mint. And you can also try like carbonation from soda. So those different things to try and enhance the neural component of swallowing so that you're enhancing their senses from all the different receptors that exist in their mucosal lining of the oral, lingual, pharyngeal, laryngeal, and the esophageal structures. Those receptors actually receive and carry modality specific sensory information throughout the afferent pathways to the brainstem and the brain where we have a sequence of sensory motor communications. And we want to make sure that the brain is enhanced or triggered to lead to the oral and pharyngeal motor events that we're looking for in this particular population. So sometimes using those different modalities, you can trigger mastication. You might be able to trigger oral manipulation of the bolus or ultimately like the whole swallowing process. Because I have seen in some patients that have brain injuries where it's almost like their brain forgets to swallow. And then also like in the pharynx area, the pharyngeal swelling can also impair like how the epiglottis moves. So then their airway can be more compromised as well. And then unfortunately, postoperatively, there's been a lot of findings of about 71-80% of dysphagia present across these cases in more of the acute care setting for persons with cervical spine injury. But you may also see that as well in the subacute areas like the nursing home or the assisted living or even in the independent living. So what are some assessments that can be used with the dysphagia population of those that student athletes or athletes that have sustained head injuries and have dysphagia, what are some of the assessments that we can use with them? There's different tools that you can use when you're looking at the cognitive component. You want to kind of look into the, I know I've used the SCAT-B. And again, like my assessments were always limited to like what I had available at the particular site. But the most common was the SCAT-B, which is the Scales of Cognitive Ability for Traumatic Brain Injury. So I've used that first because you want to kind of get a sense of where they are cognitively before you can go into any inventories or questionnaires that assess their swallowing. The swallowing itself at clinical bedside, after you do the cognitive screen and the cognitive component and you're communicating with them, if there are a higher level where they're able to answer questions, then you can go through like the qual. It's basically like a questionnaire that asks them, how they feel about their swallowing problem. And yes, it's 
more subjective because the patient is the one participating, but they're actively participating in their care. They're the component and the partner in their care. And you're able to get their view of how their swallowing is. So I've used those different questionnaires to get a sense of how they feel about, are they coughing? Are they choking on food? Do they have any problems chewing? Do they feel like they have any hypersalivation? Do they have any globus sensation? Are there any other tools that you recommend speech pathologists use? So in addition to the swell call, I did mention the EAT10 tool. The MDaddy is a good one. That's an MD Anderson dysphagia inventory. It's a five-point scale that strongly agree, agree, no opinion, disagree, strongly disagree, where you give them a statement and they just kind of tell you where they fall in line. Like, you know, people have difficulty cooking for me. I'm embarrassed of my eating habits. My swallowing ability limits my day-to-day activities. So definitely like the MDaddy is pretty good. The eating assessment tool, the EAT10, the Qual, the FOSS scale, the functional oral intake scale. That's another one that gives you the different levels of where they're eating in terms of consistencies. Thank you for that. I was going to ask you about head injury, dysphagia, cervical spine, and athletes. And what are some of the incidents in etiology that you found in the cervical spine injuries within the National Collegiate Athletic Association? Yeah, so it's been pretty much ill-defined, like the connection between cervical spine and dysphagia across the years. But a lot of researchers were looking into the NCAA recently at their injury surveillance program database, and they pulled some data and they calculated different rates of injury as to the number of injuries divided by the total number of athlete exposures. So across like a five-year time span, there was an estimated 11,510 neck and cervical spine injuries. They looked at it and it happened at a rate of 7.05 per 100,000 athlete exposures, which they called AEs. And they compared the men and the women. And the men, the rate in men were an average of 2.66 per 100,000 AEs. And the women, the rate in women were 1.95 per 100,000 AEs. And in comparison, men were 1.36 times more likely to suffer a neck or cervical spine injury compared with women. And I mean, they have a lot of high impact sports with a lot of collisions. And it's no surprise that the highest rate of injuries in men was found in football, which, you know, they found to have 29.09 per 100,000 athlete exposures. And then with the women, they actually found that the highest rate of injuries among the women was the sport field hockey with an average of 11.51 per 100,000 athlete exposures. And the injuries were actually 3.94 times more likely to happen during competition than in practice because, you know, they tend to hold back in practice. And what about in-season injury rates? The in-season injury rates were the highest at 8.8 average per 100,000 athlete exposures. Wow. So football and field hockey, we're going to see the highest rates of injuries. That goes into a speech pathologist advocating for our inclusion in these sports to also educate them on dysphagia, cervical spine injuries, and how it impacts athletes that have head injuries as well. What is something that you would give speech pathologists that are looking to advocate in this area for dysphagia and how they can correlate their interest in dysphagia with the sports concussions with athletes? And what advice would you give them? 
when it comes to contact sports and athletes because they're engaging in an activity where the most vulnerable areas of the spine are exposed are subject to injury and which are the lumbar lower back and the, the cervical neck regions and that region is most mobile and susceptible to injury so SLPs can engage with their public health officials they can join their state medical reserve corps group and they can do presentations and in services to make the public and community more aware of how those type of injuries can contribute to a dysphagia or a swallowing problem. And then they can talk about how we want to increase the awareness of our interdisciplinary counterparts to help us. I'm actually very big on instrumental advocacy. I've been in facilities where the therapists that were there, either they were shy about the pushback And then I kind of had a little bit of a leg up as a traveler because I didn't have to worry so much about repercussions because I was there for three, six, nine months. One place that liked me so much, they extended me for two years. So that's another story. But I let them know, like, you know, like we can't treat what we cannot see. When you're dealing with the head injury and the brainstem, we know that it helps to coordinate the swallow. When completing the clinical swallow evaluation or imaging, we want to ensure that the patient is at a neutral cervical position. Because the cervical spine injury patients, they tend to adopt like these hyperflex positions that may result in poor airway protection during the swallow. That's why sometimes I've actually co-treated with the physical therapist where we would have the patient, whether they're ambulatory and they can stand. Some patients are still dealing with dizziness, so we may not have them stand. But the ones that are ambulatory will have them stand against the wall. And the ones that can sit will have them sit against the wall and will do like these different like isometric exercises. What they do is they put their occipital lobe against the back wall and they'll pull their chin back, almost like trying to create a double chin. And then they try to feel that as like a, you know, they kind of feel that neutral position. But again, obviously I did that as a co-treatment with the physical therapist because they would have already looked at the cervical spine x-rays to see what would be safe to do at that time, especially if the patient came in like post-operatively. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature, the certificate tracker? The free CE tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. That is great advice. And I think co-treatment is so important. And I love that you gave an example of how we can utilize co-treatment for dysphagia. I do want to talk about your support group because I think that's also important for advocating. Can you tell us a little bit about your support group? So the Sali Dysphagia and Reflex-Induced Support Group that I run, we meet once monthly on the last Friday of every month via Google Meet. And sometimes I have guest speakers and sometimes I'm the presenter and we have different people from literally around the world. We have people that have joined in from Canada, Mexico, Brazil, Australia, and of course the contiguous United States. And they call in and we have a presentation where we talk just generally about dysphagia, what it is, just kind of expanding awareness. And then we talk a little bit about reflux and we answer questions in relation to GERD or if they don't have the symptom of heartburn We talk about LPR, the laryngeal reflux, and we just answer people's questions. Like sometimes people will share their symptoms. They'll share how things have alleviated for them. And our guest speakers will answer from their scope because we all have different lens and different dimensional scopes. And I've had the editor of Food Guide come in and she spoke. So we've had a registered dietitian come and speak. We've had a board certified pharmacist come and speak. And everybody comes with their own 
perspective on how to treat literally, how do they look at dysphagia? How do they look at the management of reflux and dysphagia? And we learn from each other. I've learned that we don't want to just blanketly alter somebody's medicine without consulting the pharmacy because there's something called bioavailability where you want to make sure that the medicine, that sometimes the form that it comes in is what it was designed to do. So if you change the form, then you're changing how the medicine is working throughout the body. So imagine somebody who has a brain injury, had a mild concussion, they're depending on a particular type of medicine to help them feel better, to help them regulate their emotions, to help them reorganize and reset And you go ahead and you say, oh, this person can't swallow gel, so I'm just going to open it up and toss the powder in applesauce. Or, oh, this person can't, you know, I'm just going to crush their medicines. We should check with the pharmacy to make sure that we can ask them like, hey, will me altering this medication change the bioavailability of this for my patient? Is there an alternative medicine that we can provide for the patient so that they don't lose out on the medication that they need just because of this particular swallow issue that they have? And again, brain damage has more frequently been observed in patients with upper cervical injury than in those with mid to lower cervical injuries. So we've had different professionals come and just kind of speak about dysphagia. Mm-hmm. And how would athletes, have you ever had any discussion about dysphagia in athletes after traumatic brain injury or sports concussion before? Yes, unfortunately, we have cervical pathology and the younger population is most commonly due to like ligament sprains or muscle strains. So that's very common when it comes to the athletes. And, you know, when your ligaments are weak or injured or torn, then the cervical vertebrae, they can actually move forward. And you don't want that because when they move forward, they can actually impair your the nerves impulse through your various nerves. And then the patients might get symptoms of increased mucus, increased spit, or choking on the like different excretive items. And then unfortunately, you do have those really severe cases where they might become tetraplegic because of the location in which they were hurt or quadriplegic. And there's a 40% incidence of dysphagia in that particular population. What are some of the emotional aspects that you deal with in your support group or that you also would think that athletes would also be dealing with as well? The support group, we have a span of different ages. And again, because of the different time zones and people have lives. So depending on who comes in that day is kind of influences the conversation. So there's different kinds of trauma. So depending on if it's like sports related trauma, you know, the cervical injury occurs more frequently in males than females. So we actually tend to have more males in the group if the topic of that day is related to like sports related injuries or motor vehicle accidents or falls. And our highest prevalence is in two different groups. So you have ages 15 to 30 because of your team sports, your motor vehicle accidents. And then you have your greater than 65 years because of the falls or osteoporosis or those kinds of things. That's amazing. And thank you for your work that you're doing with your support group in reaching those lives and really bringing those discussions and perspectives to the forefront. And can you give our listeners information on how they can sign up for that support group or advocate in their patients signing up for that support group? Yep. All they have to do is send their email to my email and then we'll add them to the support group. So my email is really easy. It's just my first name spelled backwards at AOL.com. So it's A-D-N-E-L-R-E-T at AOL.com. And they just express their interest in joining and then they can join us every month and ask questions or share what they've found to be helpful. Can you say your email one more time, please? Yes, A-D-N-E-L-R-E-T. It's my first name backwards at AOL.com. Thank you. 
I also wanted to ask you about your experience with the Medical Reserve Corps as a volunteer and being a volunteer instructor for the Normal Aging Swallowing Course. Can you talk about your experiences in volunteering? Because I see that that's a passion of yours. And for speech pathologists that are interested in volunteering in these areas, any resources on how to get involved? Yes. So the Medical Reserve Corps, it should be available in every state. What I believe happened was when 9-11 happened in 2001, they began to have this like New York Cares and a lot of different organizations started to form about. And I came across the Medical Reserve Corps at a health fair that talked about different like survivals. And they're literally a national network of over 200,000 volunteers. So I think you can find your local one for your state if you just go to like hhs.gov. Or you can just kind of Google Medical Reserve Corps because it's mrc.hhs.gov. And what I've done with them is you join them as, you know, as a health provider. There's There was an OT in my local one as well. And you can do presentations. You can do advocacy. You can do community awareness. And then a lot of times when there are emergencies stateside, we actually get deployed to help support the National Guard. So let's say like there were some Nor'easters coming in into Delaware some years ago, and they'd formed little triage centers to kind of help gather the people who were stuck in the snow and gather different individuals. And you would put them in the center and you just kind of keep watching, make sure that they were okay. Why is the speech pathologist helpful in this sense? Well, there were a lot of residents who were stuck in their homes who actually had mild dementia, or they didn't know how to protect themselves or sustain themselves when it came to their own medicines. So with you joining the Medical Reserve Corps, you can actually be of assistance with helping the community at large. And in terms of the normal aging swallow course, like that was really fun to be able to engage the community and answer their questions because a lot of people still don't know what we do. They still don't know about dysphagia. And I also didn't just talk about like dysphagia within like the community in terms of, oh, this is what it is. Like, oh, it's a you know swallow disorder. I also talked about it in the sense of I wanted to empower the community to go to the hospital and advocate for instrumentals. Like, hey, like if anybody at that hospital or at that nursing home or at that assisted living or at that independent living center, at that outpatient center, or even at that school, if anybody suspects that there's something going on in the pharyngeal phase or the esophageal phase, help them advocate, help them fight, help them talk to administrators and business offices to help pay for or help you get your swallow assessment done. I use the patients as advocates as much as I advocate for myself because we don't want to feel like we're on this little autonomous island. Sometimes you can talk about neuroanatomy and talk about the physiology and pathophysiology. I feel like a lot of times we'll hear a presentation or we'll go to a talk and we kind of shy away from when people start talking about anatomy or like the basic structures of items, but that's our ammunition. Like that's what we can use to argue and advocate for instra instrumentals. Cause I can't see the spine. I can't see the inside of the throat muscles and what they're doing in real time without an instrumental to be objective. And we can talk about the different nerves that are in relation to swallow. We can talk about the cranial nerve um, five and how it helps with muscles of biting and chewing and swallowing. We can tell the doctor and we can tell the nurse like, hey, you know, there's cranial nerve seven that helps with taste sensation and salivary glands. There's the vagus nerve that helps with the pharyngeal phase of swallowing. There's this cranial nerve nine of the glossopharyngeal that moves muscles of tongue and throat. Here, this cranial nerve 11 the hypoglossal that helps with muscles of the pharynx and bolus propulsion to the esophagus. And all these nerves run around the front of the cervical spine vertebrae, especially the C1 and C2. Therefore, if I'm suspecting that my patient has cervical spine injury, 
because they've experienced some type of head injury or trauma, let's make sure that they don't have a cervical spine injury. Let's send them to the MD and get an x-ray of the cervical spine. And or because these nerves run around the front of the cervical spine and they came in with an established cervical spine injury, let's go ahead and do an instrumental to make sure that we can diagnose properly the pharyngeal phase of the swallow. That is so interesting. You have given so much great information on how we can advocate in this area. And I thank you so much for being a volunteer and doing the work. You know, it seems like, you know, you are doing the work in this area. So I thank you so much for that. Yeah, I wanted to also ask you about just your experience as an ASHA step mentor and your experience as a mentor. What do you enjoy about mentoring? What I really do like about it is I like how you're almost like kind of helping the person answer their own questions. You're helping them discover themselves. Like I like helping other people discover themselves because a lot of times people think they're lost, but they really have the answer. They just need somebody to just kind of help co-sign it. (laughs) So that's what I really enjoy. Like people will ask questions and, oh, what do you think I should do? And I remind them like, hey, like I'm not here to think for you. I'm not here to make your decisions. I'm not here to basically like spoon feed you any of the answers. What I am here for is to really support you in the decisions that you think you want to make? Like, what do you desire to get out of this? And I think that's really helpful for people to have job satisfaction, career satisfaction, and satisfaction within themselves. Like, what am I giving to the field so that I can make a difference in someone else? It's not about being the perfect therapist. It's about being a therapist that has progress, progress within themselves, progress within their career, and being able to see progress in others and help others progress as well. I love that. So I try to say like progress over perfection. Mm, progress over perfection. That's kind of what like what motivates me to volunteer because like I used to have terrible panic attacks. <laughs> kind of had one tonight. <laughs> but getting past that, like trying to push past that and and being able to share what you've learned and share what you know, it really is helpful to others. What are some of the common questions that you do receive as a mentor? A lot of people want to know, like, is this field right for them? Like, you know, what are the pros and cons of the field? They want to know, like, can they join the field as a male? They want to know, can they sustain the lifestyle that they desire with the pay scale as a therapist? Or what different settings can a speech pathologist work in? Those are the different questions that I've gotten commonly. Can they get into grad school? (laughs) So those are the different questions that I've gotten commonly. Any questions related to medical speech pathology in particular? A lot of the times they just kind of want to know like what demographic we work with. And again, that can vary by setting, that can vary by facility, and that can vary by location. Mm -hmm. Can you please tell us a little bit also about your experience with the ASHA Leadership Development Program and your experience, you know, being a part of the healthcare cohort? That's such a unique experience. Yes, I was very honored to be a part of that experience with the ASHA Leadership Development Program. It really pushed me out of my comfort zone. We had to create different projects to kind of encompass what we wanted to do. So they were like, what was your project? What are you interested in doing? And this is kind of something that I've done, like just within my little bubble at my particular medical reserve corps, just talking to a few people. But I was like, wait a minute, let me challenge myself to expand. And I loved how they talk about being a leader is not bossing people around. It's not trying to micromanage somebody else. It's literally just kind of helping everybody just kind of come together and 
enhance each other's skills. And I really wanted to empower my fellow coworkers and empower myself to kind of expand awareness about dysphagia, as scared as that might've made me as like a serious introvert. But I really wanted to step outside of my comfort zone and they really helped me to do that. So we had these like monthly meetings and we had like these little breakout groups that we would like encourage each other. And as part of the project, I was like, okay, let me reach out and see, like, how can I expand the awareness of dysphagia? I was able to, like, for Better Hearing and Speech Month, I actually started in 2020 because the original cohort was for 2020, but because of the pandemic, we got moved into the 2022 year. So I had actually been working on different little projects as a consortium of dysphagia awareness expansion since 2020. And it was really nice to be able to, for Better Hearing Speech Month, for two years in a row, I created, like, a little scavenger hunt and a 31-day activity of the day or fact of the day where people would come and they would learn about a fact about, you know, medical speech pathology specifically, but they would learn about, okay, like, what is this dysphagia? When should we suspect a spinal cord injury? Like, that was an example of one of the facts. And it said, okay, well, if the patient had been unconscious, if the patient had evidence of a neurological injury, if the patient had any type of axial neck pain, but even in the absence of any neurologic findings, there could be a possibility of spinal cord injury. So that's something to kind of keep in mind. So people were liking to come in and learn about different facts and, oh, we didn't realize that speech pathology did all these different things, or we didn't realize that there was so much to swallowing. Because, I mean, something as simple as reminding people to not feed patients in a supine position. People were not aware that as we get older and the larynx descends downward, it's easier for the food to get into the airway. So let's not feed people laying down (laughs) and let's, you know, really watch our posture when we're in these, you know, facilities where they can't really advocate for themselves or they can't sit themselves up. That's an excellent idea that you had, the scavenger hunt. I love that. Yeah, I did that. And I also obviously was contributing by doing my support group, which is ongoing. And then I also signed up for this podcast as well, just to kind of push myself to just do more, to challenge myself and to break not being comfortable being seen. (laughs) That's not my comfort level. (laughs) And I thank you so much for, you know, stepping out of your comfort zone. And I think when you step out of your comfort zone, you give other people the courage to step out of theirs as well because they see you. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for being a leader, for a mentor in our profession. And then also just thinking about sports concussions, you know, and how it's related to cervical spinal injury and head injury and dysphagia and how we can educate graduate students and the next generation and also current professionals, you know, that need continued education in this area and how to understand the background of cervical spinal injury. Because I don't think we really talk about it enough, cervical spinal injuries and how it relates to dysphagia and head injury. What are some resources that really helped guide your learning? Was it in your graduate program? What helped guide your learning? It was really just coming across patients that had the cervical spine injury and picking the brain of orthopedic surgeons and literally calling the institute that I went to myself when I had to have spinal surgery. So like I reached out to the New York Spine Institute, just kind of picked their brains, asked questions. I went to spine-health.com. And then just kind of looking at the research, looking at the research, there's a group, the National Spinal Cord Injury Statistical Center. They were very helpful. But that within itself was exactly what I was having difficulty with. 
that was not mentioned at all. Like again, because I mean, like dysphagia is way more talked about now than when I was in graduate school. I know in graduate school, I had maybe one course and that was my biggest motivator to kind of really push myself. I spoke to a nursing facility when I first came out of graduate school. I did schools for about four years. And then I told them, I said, what is it that you want? What is it that I can do where I can gain the experience for dysphagia? Because I want to start where I'm least comfortable. I want to start where I didn't have a lot of information. And they said, we're going to put you in a facility that only has six patients. So you have the time to kind of research each of them and kind of treat them like a little pilot studies. And you go from there. And when I started getting more patients that had cervical spine injuries, that's when I kind of started looking more into it. Tell us a little bit about the pilot studies. That's interesting. And again, like I'm no big researcher or anything like, so basically all I did was I took a notebook. I wrote down everything I could about the patient. I did what I could from my end. And then from there, I learned more about them. Like, I don't know if earlier I mentioned like the dancer, there was like a dancer that had an issue where they had did a pirouette. They had fallen backwards. They had hit their head and they had sustained a cervical spine injury. Right. And I had never heard of the cervical spine injury in that sense when they had come to me in that particular nursing home. And I was just like, well, what is this cervical spine? So I started learning about it, how the cervical spine can be injured from different things, contusions, which is a bruise or rotation, extension, flexion of the spinal cord and things of that nature. And I was like, okay, let me screen her early for dysphagia, you know, because in any population with high trauma and cervical spinal injury, it's important because the most common cause of death in the spinal cord injury patients is respiratory problems. So we want to make sure that we're looking for any signs and symptoms that can happen. And I learned from this particular first patient, the cervical spine nerve compression can be what we call an unseen cause of swallowing difficulties because she had like an esophageal spasm. She had an acid reflux. But when we had sent her out for like, you know, that your typical modifieds and things of that nature, we couldn't really find anything. You could play devil's advocate or chicken lay the egg and which came first type thing. Like maybe there was a limitation in the frames per second on what was captured. There could have been limitations in terms of like the equipment at the time or anything like that. But I learned something called cervicogenic dysphagia. And I was like, okay, this patient has cervicogenic dysphagia. What is that? And I was able to look up different articles that talked about, even as early as 1989, there was an article about it, how, you know, if you have any cervical instability in the neck, that has been linked to swallowing difficulties. And this particular patient, her chief complaint was that the onset of dysphagia had come out of nowhere. But when you really look into the history, there was a bulging disc in her neck, right? But we didn't find that right away. Okay. She had like a little whiplash thing going on. She had a post-concussion syndrome that it didn't last for two weeks. It actually lasted almost two years. By the time I'm seeing her, I'm learning all of this. And I'm just like, okay, then she had like an old injury from a car accident. So all of these different things kind of played into, wait a minute, do you have neck pain? <laughs> you know, have you had muscle spasms in your neck? And she admitted like, you know what? There was a little dizziness going on. And, and then we finally found an MD because it was a very rural area. This was like Linden, Texas. This was like in the middle of nowhere. And it turns out that she had like, when she had fallen down, she ended up having a malrotation in her C2. And at the time... I was taught that C1 and C2 are actually more rare to get injured. So I was expecting her to have more of an injury, like a little bit lower, like, you know, C3, C4, you know, that kind of a thing. So just dealing with the patients and kind of writing down what's in their chart and what's going on in their notebook. And it's hard to kind of keep everything to myself because, you know, I was a travel therapist. So I wasn't able to, you know, just kind of click on the EMR and it just kind of went with whatever was in my head. And then I move on to the next assignment. But it was really 
interesting to start seeing patterns. And again, only six patients, but to see that pattern where, okay, the common areas of injury seem to be, especially when it's relating to trauma, was the C2, was the C5, was the C6, was the C7. And it's unfortunate when it comes from, you know, something as simple as a fall, because she did consider herself an athlete as a dancer, as a professional ballerina. She considered herself an athlete. I think that's important that we don't consider dancers to be contact sports, but she also sustained a head injury. I think it's also important to also think of athletes, not just in contact sports. And I think you also said asking the right questions is important too, because you had to kind of ask those questions to get that information. It wasn't just in the medical chart and you didn't really see it right away in her medical history. Right. Interesting. Right. I think that's important, you know, takeaway is that we have to ask the right questions. We have the instrumentation and the questionnaires that we talked about, like the ACE, the acute concussion evaluation tool. Utilizing those tools will help guide your questioning. And if you use them enough, it becomes second nature. You just start to ask those questions even without the tool, right? And you know what was really interesting with that case? was that the C1 and the C2, right? Like how they were unstable. They were actually, the bony process of the top of it was actually kind of compressing a little bit into the brainstem. Mm. I think the other thing that I learned from it was not being afraid to ask the doctor, is there anything else that would be an appropriate referral for this particular patient? Because she had a very unusual journey to recovery. She went to a chiropractor. They readjusted her. And that was kind of like a taboo subject at the time that I came out of graduate school for that to even be a thing. But it was a very diverse setting in terms of they had a massage therapist, they had an acupuncturist, like they had a lot of different specialists within the facility. So the chiropractor literally did an adjustment. He did several adjustments and that actually helped her get stability of her cervical spine. She was fine. She didn't have to be on soft solids anymore. So it was very interesting and unique. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. You've provided so much great information. I just want to thank you, Perlinda. I truly appreciate your research, you know, your education, your expertise that you provided about difficulty swallowing after head injury. I am Dr. Tabia Pope. And you can reach me at info at headedspeech.org or you can follow me at headedspeech on Instagram and Facebook. And I just want to thank you for joining us and I will see you next time on On the Neuro. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Mm-hmm.